This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today we have with us Maurice Philogen. Here's some highlights about Maurice. He was born in New York, raised in Boston, lived in DC, UVA grad in 1997. He's a 22-year senior executive at Accentura. He's a 22-year USAF reservist special agent, so thank you very much for your service. He's also worked 10 years as a police officer in the D.C. area. And for those who are listening, he's not doing that because he has to. He's doing that because he just wants to give back and help people. Um, He began investing in real estate, single family in 2002. He acquired over 35 units. And at that point, he he could no longer work anymore if he didn't want to. Um, But then he, for reasons of growth, he switched to multifamily in 2017. And now he's well over his way to over 1,000 units part-time owner, numerous restaurants in DC, and he has a passion in educating on financial freedom, traveling, immersion, culture, 94th um, countries. Um, so what we're talking about today is really mindset and the mechanics of how to, how to do these things, I think are readily available. There are books everywhere, but the mindset as to how he got to where he got to is what we're focusing on today. I think it would be easy for anyone to look at his life right now and think, oh, you were born with a silver spoon. You, you, know, you have all these properties. You've got this great family. I think your parents just gave you everything because you pro- were probably just born or hanging out the country club. But So we'll explore in this podcast how he got to where he got to and really the mindset that got him there. So Maurice, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, man, it's my pleasure, Chris. I really appreciate you having me on. So I'll start people who don't know you, they're going to look at your life and say, you have a blessed life. You probably had rich parents who gave you everything. You know, you're, you walk into a restaurant, you're part owner, you have all these, these real estate investing um, interests. Tell me where you started off. Yeah. So, I mean, outside looking in, outside looking in, I could understand that, but I also think that people can see through kind of a shiny object and sometimes look interior uh, so I come from an immigrant family. My family's from Haiti. And as you mentioned, I was born in New York and raised in Boston. And I ended up in the D.C. area because of the University of Virginia. The one thing that I had growing up as a kid, even though my brother and I, I have one older brother, we grew up in inner city Boston, but my parents were smart enough. As soon as we started getting in trouble in the city, she moved us out to the burbs. My mother's a very fiery 5'7 Haitian woman who doesn't play around at all. But I I definitely, the one advantage I have had over some is that I had a very stable family. My mother and father have been together for the past 50 plus years, their first boyfriend, girlfriend. We always had a two-parent household growing up, traditional stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And my parents pushed education. So thrown into parochial and private school with my dad working three jobs to make it happen. And then once I got to 18, son, college is your responsibility. You got to figure it out. I ended up getting a military scholarship. Uh, we had my family has no basis uh, of the military at that point, but it, it got me away into school, and I and I took it. Fast forward, I graduate from University of Virginia after having played football and uh, studying mechanical engineering and doing Air Force ROTC all at the same time. So maybe there's a mindset thing there, and it led me to the consulting firm I work for now, Accenture. It led me to uh, being a reservist in the Air Force, where I eventually became a special agent um, in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations for 22 years. And then it also led me to, uh, or circumstances led me to real estate investing, where I am now. So under no circumstances was, was anything handed to me. It was certainly by hard work, but I certainly had a foundation of family, which I think is really important for everybody. So there's there are a lot of people born in the inner, inner city who do not achieve what you achieved or got to where you got to, what would you say are are the biggest lessons that your parents taught you? Because a lot of parents, I don't see it in people from every background, parents will really focus on, on, on sports, whatever sport that happens to be to not talk about school. Yeah. Again, 
my, my dad and mom are not, I mean, they're, they're Americans for sure, but they're, they're immigrant folks. My mom is from the capital of Haiti. My dad is from a very small village in the north part of Haiti. We're not, especially in the black community, sports is always pushed. Like, go play football, go play basketball. It's a way out. Yeah, that, it wasn't the way out that my parents threw on me. The way out, especially my father, who's a 30-year educator and retired school principal, and then my mom is a 20-year guidance counselor who was uh, fired out of corporate America back in the 80s. Um, everything was about education. So they said, get your degree and then you will figure it out. Like that was their only goal for me was, we're going to get you your degree and then we're going to trust you to make decisions. I think the catalyst for me was, I remember calling my parents the summer between freshman and sophomore year at University of Virginia when I had no money. And my mother said to me, and I got in a little bit of trouble like academically, um, my mother said to me, what would you like me to do? Because we have no money to give you at all. So go, you know, make the right decisions, right? I understand that people come, come from dis dis disadvantaged backgrounds, but there is some level of internal, I want to be more, and I have wanted to be more since I was 15, since a few certain things happened. And, um, Can you I explain, just, wait, just, that I think is a really important point, not to yeah. cut you off, but, yeah, okay. but I think but not glossing over that point is really important. So yeah. what is it that, that drove you when you were 15 to do the things that you were Yeah, doing? it was because uh, my, my family had an exchange student come stay with us from France, and I'm a French speaker, and they wanted me to practice my language. And uh, the next summer, when I was 15, I went over to France, stayed with him, his name is Matthew, and his father, three days into my visit in 1990, put us in an old 83 stick shift Range Rover and drove us around the country for 30 days. And I got to experience life in a very different way than running around the streets of Boston or running through my suburb of Randolph, Massachusetts or whatever. Uh, castles, French people, food, wine, just, just every ima imaginable experience. It was, it fundamentally changed the direction of my life. Where I thought that rap videos and sports is where I should be, I recognized that there was this whole big other part of the planet that I knew nothing about, and that I could be different into myself, not comparing with anyone. I just wanted to live my life a different way. Um, so that was the catalyst. I figured out that there was, I was exposed to something different in the world, and I knew that I was going to go figure it out at some point. But it's hard. So studying is a, it's a long-term play. Mm -hmm. and, and this question is really to help parents or if there are any younger kids listening to this. Yep. I'm guessing mostly parents. So sports are a quick, immediate return for everyone. It's great for kids to play. on a, And I'm not saying that – I 100% agree with you. So sports are great, but it's immediate feedback. You get to go play high school – whatever sport it happens to be, you get to win, the parents get to brag, oh, look how good my kid's doing with yeah. this sport. And, but the odds of making it to a, a professional team and making a living at it are really small. Yeah. Studying, on the other hand, you're not, it's not that cool thing to do. You're sitting in the library, you're sitting at home studying, you're not going out as much as everyone else, you're not partying like everyone else, you're not getting the high school glory like everyone else. Right. So what gave you the discipline to do that? To think long-term versus just the short-term return. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. So um, I did both. I had parallel paths. I had the, Mo was going to play sports. So I played basketball. I played football. I wasn't, I wasn't that great at basketball, but my basketball team at the time was 22nd in the country. And we had like two guys who were NBA worthy on my team. But football was my thing. And I always wanted to play football in college. So I got to the Naval Academy, got accepted to the Naval Academy didn't, I turned it down because I wanted to play football at a regular Division One school. So I went to University of Virginia, walked onto the team with aspirations of making it to the pros. I had one NFL tryout, and that tryout convinced me that I needed to try out for something else. And why was that? I just didn't belong, brother. I, 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 like I got there, it was a tryout, and it was like a multi-team tryout in Atlanta. It was, a, it was a pro camp. And the moment I walked in there, there was too much ego for me to – to vibe there and there were just people who were physically better than me and that was okay but I still had the balls to go on my own without any support so when I said I ran parallel paths what you were talking about that immediate feedback 
my parents never my parents came to my games but they didn't like i would score a touchdown they didn't cheer because they didn't know <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know to cheer you know what my parents cheered me on was getting through fluid dynamics in high school my parents cheered me on getting through ap math and when i mean getting through i mean getting through with a b minus or a c those like, are hard fluid so for anyone who doesn't know fluid dynamics is not an easy subject no sucks i don't know sucks. why they me in high school but you know. and i don't know how to apply to anything in life but you have to do it anyway so it is what it is <laughs> well it teaches problem solving skills that's for sure it does it yeah. does it's like weightlifting for your brain <laughs> it is, actually it is it expands your brain in a different way brother but that's that's the thing i had these parallel paths no no one gave me anything and the mindset came from i was being cheered from doing educational stuff so i just pushed myself on an educational level and got my degree, and then started making life decisions that were the right decisions, and then here I am. So your, your parents, and I'm, I'm going to kind of fixate on this a little bit, sure. is that your parents are clearly supportive. They're going to their game, the football games. They don't really know what's going on because they don't have football in Haiti, oh. but they're still supportive. There's, yeah. What gave you the drive to do both? So to work hard academically and then clearly compete as an athlete, how did you get that discipline? That's what society was doing. I think I had the drive. Look, I had an older brother, and me and my bro older brother joke. He was a street smart cat, and I was the book smart cat. When I used to run around the street, when I used to run around with my boys in Boston, I'd be the one they would call. There was an old rapper back in the '90s called Intelligent Hoodlum. I was a dude who was running around doing stupid stuff in the city, but then say, "Oh man, I got to go home and finish my my homework." That was, that was how, me. How did your friends take that? Um, my immediate close friends, believe it or not, supported it because they had had so many friends who, let me back up for a second. I told you my pops, he was a principal, which didn't make a lot of money, but he doubled down as a bus monitor and one other part-time job to put me into a private school. That's how, that's how awesome my father was about making sure I got my education, right? Fortunately for me, because I was surrounded by very affluent kids. There was a couple brothers who came up who were recruited to the school to come play sports, right? Uh, inner city kids. They would dope as can be at basketball and football. And I migrated towards them. And thank God that I did because I almost kind of lost my identity in that school a little bit being surrounded by affluence, but kind of forgetting where I came from and who I was. And so I had kind of this mix of both worlds. So when, when, when we would go out and stuff like that, everybody knew that I was in that school. Nobody wanted me to mess up. So it'd be like, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night and where fellows were still hanging out for the night. Some of them would be like, man, you got to go home. You, you shouldn't be. Do, you shouldn't so you be. surrounded yourself with people because I'm sure that wasn't an accident who would support you in your goals. Yeah, but they had goals, too. I mean, I think more of their goals were on the sports side. Sure. That's okay. But, um, yeah, we kind of supported ourselves. I was definitely surrounded by the right cats at that time. So th this is another interesting for thing for me. So anyone who is coming from a background without – and I'm speaking for myself as well. So you're coming from a background with without affluence. So yeah. your, your dad's working three jobs. Your mom they're, – like, they're working as hard as they can to get you in the school – you have other people in the school who are gifted everything and the culture is different. People who don't have a lot of money from what I've seen, they view the world a little bit differently. They, they carry themselves a little differently. They're not hanging out a, in a, on a yacht in France every summer and they're not hanging out at the country club. They're working and they're working hard. So what was it like going to a school where you had that background surrounded by people with a totally different background and life experiences than you? How did you adapt to that? It was confusing. It was 100% confusing. Where, where, I was, where I was rotating through two pair of pants for the week, right? I never forget. I had a checkerboard pair of gray pants. I would wear it on Monday and then rock jeans on Tuesday, put that checkerboard pair of pants back on Wednesday, and maybe rock the jeans Thursday and Friday, and people figured it out. It was just confusing because I thought I was doing okay, and then you see, like you go over to your friend's house, and, you know, it's a 5,000 square foot home. And they're 16 years old driving a brand new 1992 Mercedes. It was, and, I, and, I, and then I worked, you know, on the weekends at a shoe store at the local mall. It was just, 
it was confusing, but I had a good enough. Confusing in what way? Why didn't I have that? How come my parents didn't have it? Or is that what I'm supposed to be? Or am I fighting towards that? Or, yeah, you know, I don't know. Like as a 12, 13, I started at that school when I was uh, eighth grade. So 13 years old. So I'm 13 to 15, 13 to 18, I was just surrounded by affluence one way or the other. But I had a good enough family that I, I eventually came to understand that my, my path is going to be different one way or the other. And then so you, I was surrounded by my boys who were at the school, so I was okay. You just, you just brought up some really philosophical, deep things that I, don't, I don't, also don't want to gloss over because I think that will speak to a lot of people who are striving for better and they're wrestling with those exact same concepts. So I, I don't know what your conclusions were as to why did you not have as much as, as these other people? Why is life not fair? Um, yeah. What are you supposed to do in life? I was never a victim. I never took the victim card. I had a good family. I think that's different. That's why I think there's systematic issues with life today where people start with one parent or zero parents and they got to figure it out on their own. I always had the foundation of my family. So I can, I can always lean back on that. But there was some self-starter motivation in there. Like I, and maybe being surrounded by that affluence as sometimes what I wanted, but many times what I didn't want. You know what I mean? Like what? What did you not want? Yeah, they were just some snooty kids, man. I'm not... Yeah, they were just... Yeah, I, I think sometimes when you are born into affluence, you don't know how to exist or grind out to, to get the resources that you need to survive or give back to community. You just have those resources from the beginning. That's where I've seen, quote-unquote, affluent, affluent kids who travel the world, right, because they're affluent and they want to go, you know, one year and vagabond through Europe or something like that, and they don't really have a basis for what they're doing because they've never struggled with anything. Uh, I know it's a very broad statement, but... Uh, you know, I'm speaking from someone who saw it and who kind of went through it. Actually, looking back on it, where I came from, mixed with that, it was a perfect mix because I will never forget the struggle of what my parents did to give me what I had. And I'm sure folks in that school had struggles as well. So I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, I'm just suggesting that, you know, inner city kid who's thrown into a private school like that, it can just, it, it was a very difficult thing. And helped me grow a bit of a hard skin for what was to come in life, if you will. What is it like for your parents now? Because clearly you've invested very well yeah. um, and, and you've done exceptionally well. What is yeah. it like for your parents to see you now? My parents don't really understand what the hell's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got an immigrant family, man. If you, if you talk to anybody who has an immigrant parent base, I think it's generally the same. Like, they still have old world values. They're not impressed by anything. They want to see me continue my education. Or all they ever talk about is their grandkids' education. They don't talk about what I'm doing in the real estate space or the restaurant space or this world travel that I do or consult. They still, I mean, even the consulting stuff, I've been at that firm for 22 years. They don't have a clue what I, a clue what I do. But, but where they are proud is that I left at 18, became self-sustainable self-sustainable by 21 and then I'm giving back to community in very meaningful ways. That's what they see. That's all they care about now. So have you ever taken them to one of the restaurants that you own and be like, I'm a part owner of this restaurant. Yeah. What's their reaction? Um, I think they're proud. I think they're proud. Uh, my dad, my dad doesn't care about that crap. <laughs> and that's why I love him so much. What my dad cares about is when I, like if I, you know, this, I'm going, I'll probably go overseas in the next one or two weeks over to Lebanon. Like I told you, it's a French speaking country. So my father is fascinated with French speaking country. So he asked me more questions related to my international travel than he will about any money related thing or business related thing. And I, and I love that about him. And I think in a way, I'm still trying to show my dad that I've been a good son or that I've, that I listened to him back in the day when I was 15, right? He told me, you got to get out in the world and expand yourself um, have empathy for community, learn, learn, learn. But I think in a way I'm still trying to like be like him. What would you say is the biggest lesson your dad taught you? If you could pick one, if you can't top three is fine. Well, I never cared about money. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the lesson. He never like specified the lessons, 
He specified the way of living. Get your education, constant learning, especially in the international realm, and care about people. That's all my father is. If you were ever to meet my father, he doesn't have a bad bone in his body. Anyone who goes around him walks, walks away from him smiling, you know? Um, so that, that's, that's what he gave me, was just how to exist in this world as long as you can. You know when his mom died? Well, my dad's mom died in 1996, and she, was, she raised me in the house, my grandmother, and passed away in 96. The day she died, I, I called him. I said, you doing okay? He said, yeah. I said, where's, her name was Mama Sanson, which is uh, kind of a Haitian, Haitian nickname. He's like, well, she spent her time on this world. She gave back everything she needed to give back, according to the Lord, and now she's moved on to help another community. Like, this is how this man operates his life, you know? So uh, he gave me very intrinsic lessons that I feel like I'm giving to other parts of the world now. So it's pretty cool. Now, the other question I have for you, the extension of that is you grew up in a specific space of, you didn't have a lot, but you saw the world. Yeah. And you had to grind it out. Your kids are not growing up. How many kids do you have? Two. And um, from what I gather, same wife for... No, no, no. I'm not married, but I have two kids. It's about two kids. Okay. Um, what are the lessons that you have for your kids? Yeah, it, it's, it's pro- well, I mean, it's ongoing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that my father gave me. And to be clear, they sent me to France on that trip in 1990. But from there, it was me making a conscious decision to travel the world because of the lessons my dad gave me. So my parents sent me on one trip. Mm-hmm. Every other trip from that point was because Maurice made a conscious decision to go experience the world no matter how much money I had. You know what I mean? Um, it's the same thing for my kids. I, my six-year-old, he's, his mom is Canadian, or my six-year-old, man, he'd kill me. My seven-year-old, Noah, <laughs> is half Canadian. He sees like this world map behind me that I have all these pins in, and he's very excited about it. He's now been to maybe five, I'd have to count, but maybe five countries. Uh, we lived in Croatia for three or three or four weeks at one point, and we traveled around Paris and France. I'm sorry, uh, London, France, Spain together. We went to Italy together. He's constantly in Canada with his cousins. Uh, My oldest is getting ready to travel with me to Lebanon, which is a very unique thing. I'm trying to show these kids that there is more to this life than what society tells you you have to do. Like that path that we've been hearing for years of high school, college, get your degree, go on a corporate world or whatever you're going to do you know, get a mortgage, get two car payments. Like you don't, you don't have to do any of that. And there's this big wide world of one international experiences to experience this beautiful planet that the Lord gave us. And then two, you can go have a nine to five. Phenomenal. You can be an entrepreneur if you want. Phenomenal. There's a board game on my table upstairs. Robert Kiyosaki's old uh, um, cash flow board game, mm-hmm. which teaches you how to get out of the rat race. So now that Noah is seven, it's still a little bit complicated, but we're starting to do that and we're keying in on Monopoly a bit so I can teach them a different mindset. So I'm trying to teach both of my kids, you can do it a different way. It's their choice, but I would like them to see as many things that I've seen around the world and in the U.S., but also from a business perspective, and then they can choose whatever it is they want to do. So before we dive into the the details of some real estate investing and the mechanics of how you achieved what you've achieved. Yeah. What's your spiritual practice? Because you don't, when you watch what I, at least the perception I get is when you see people, there's some, some people on YouTube and, and they have videos out and they talk about how they're flying around in jets and they have a Lamborghini and, and they, they're like buying all this stuff. Um, but they never really talk about, you don't really know what's going on behind the closed doors. You don't know if they're scamming their investors or not. Like you have no idea. But your approach to this is very, very different. And you've mentioned higher, a higher purpose uh, based on your upbringing. So what is your spiritual practice or belief? I'm not a religious man. Not. My father is deeply religious. Um, and I grew up in the church at least until age 15 or 16, but maybe even earlier than that. But I'm not a religious person. I'm a very spiritual person in believing that there is some level of higher power or whatever you want to call it, whether you call it God, the law of attraction, Allah, Jesus. I mean, I just think that there's something out there. And I, 
everything that I'm doing is easy for me to do because I do have a purpose. And my purpose, part of my purpose happens to be giving back to the world in a meaningful way, whether it's local community, like the police officer stuff, or international community, what I was doing for the military, or even broader international community, uh, how the way that I travel and purposefully try and interact with people and give, give back to them. You know, all those folks that you see doing what they're doing on YouTube and the cars and all that, like, I, it makes me, eh, you don't know who they are behind the scenes. So we, we don't have a right to judge. I prefer, I didn't realize I was doing this, but I don't compete with anyone. I, I create. I don't compete in the corporate world. I don't compete in this investment world. I just, whatever I earn, I use it to go create something. Fortunately, Chris, I found out years ago that commercialism was killing us from a, we're taking our hard-earned dollars from our W-2 employment and we're going out and buying houses and cars and clothes and banks are pushing mortgages, right? The American dream, like it just, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And without realizing it, I've been somewhat of a minimalist my whole life. I mean, I'm still driving my 05 Infinity because it works. I don't need another car. I have a very humble home. I don't want a huge home. It's a lot to take care of. I don't buy a ton of clothes. I don't, I buy what I need. You know what I mean? Or, and if I buy something and I don't use it for three months, then it gets donated to somebody who does need it. But you buy buildings and restaurants? Yeah, but I buy those. They, they serve a purpose for the community. Think about it. Like I can, there's a way to, my first multifamily purchase, Chris, was a mobile home park. One of the reasons I like that mobile home park is because it's 16 acres of land in the midst of a community that has one to $2 million estates on it. Within that 16 acres, there are 60 up to 80 mobile home pads and it's all fixed income families. I'll never forget when I first visited, I ran into the lady who lives in lot 24. Her first name was Gloria. Gloria is a 70 plus year old woman who was fighting cancer who gets 700 bucks a month income from the government. That's all she has. So I can buy that property, keep it from a developer who is trying to get it. I am uniquely providing a place to live for 70, 60 to 70 plus families who are on a fixed income. That's like, I feel great about that. So wait, you know let's, I mean? let's give, so I think that's a, a worthwhile story. We yeah. talked about it offline. Can you give some details as to why the owner sold that mobile home park to you and yeah. what you intend to do with it. And actually how as a business person, you're actually helping the community. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, it was my partner had a relationship with the owner or developed a relationship with the owner. Owner is a, he might be in his eighties now. He built the park back in the seventies and the people who live in that park, he cares about them. So when big corporations were trying to buy this mobile home park, he was like, no, because then the park's going to get sold to a developer. A developer's going to come in and sell six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars townhomes or something like that and kick everybody out. What convinced that person was that myself and my partner, we really spent the time to have a connection with the owner and express that these homes ain't going anywhere. Um, I come from a humble background, the way you and I have talked about. I served in the military for 20 plus years at the time. There's a couple of uh, uh, military veterans who are in there. He came to understand that our purpose for buying the park was, yes, to make money, because we have to make money. It's, it is a business, but also to provide a service to those folks. So in the four years, three, three almost four years that we've owned it, there's been one rental increase on rent for 10 bucks. As long as we can maintain it such that we're not losing money and we're not gouging ourselves and subsidizing housing to the point that we are paying for it, I'm, o I'm okay with it. And it's showing my kids something. It's showing the residents there something. Um, and frankly, I go to bed feeling good because I know that those 60 families have a place to stay whereby what, the moment we bought it, Chris, there was a developer offering us several million dollars to take it off on top of what we paid to take it from us. And we said, absolutely not. Now, there are other people that would say, you know what? I closed the deal. I don't know what the, de the, the details of the, the contract were when you bought it. Yeah. But... Explain the thought process and the motivation to say, you know what, I'm going to turn down the quick, easy money and keep this and really take care of people. Because I don't know how, like, I, I, I really don't know how many people would, would stay true to their word or how many people would say, you know what, 
okay, I conned this guy. I got this mobile home park. I'm going to flip it and make a boatload of money right now. The former owner, we did self-financing, seller financing, excuse me. So the owner of it is the bank. And he gave us, he gave us a loan because he owned the property outright. And he gave us a loan for the, the value of the property plus a little bit more at a very, very low interest only rate. It, it works. Now, in two years, Chris, I never took one, me and my partner never took one cent of profit. Here's why. We took all that money and we reinvested it into the park. The park needed new infrastructure. It needed new roads. It needed better customer service. Uh, it needed new homes on the property because there were all these spaces that were missing. And the township where the park is um, recognized the changes that we were making. So rather than be a hindrance to what we were doing with all the rules and regulations and pay us this license fee and that license fee, the moment they figured out what we were doing, which was the right way, they were just like, we trust you, go. Matter of fact, they waived all these licensing fees and all this type of stuff because they saw that we were giving affordable housing within their community that they couldn't provide, you know? I don't care what other real estate investors do. This is what I'm telling you, I'm not competing. I'm not competing for number of units. I'm not competing for net worth. I am creating for people and then competing internally with myself where my goal is to impact people's lives such that the day that I move on from this world, I know that I did good stuff. But I will make money along the way and I'm okay with that. So let's back up some more then. How did you go from corporate America, corporate job to you're going to dive into real estate? I knew I was going to do something. When I was 21, I picked up, I was in Queens, New York, and I was in an old bookstore and I picked up personal finance for dummies. I don't know why I picked it up to this day. I just saw it and I picked it up. I figured out how I could fix my personal finances. Then, you know, the universe did something good for me, which was I bought a condo to live in as a 23-year-old when I was starting my career. And it was at the beginning of the real estate boom. So there was a little bit of timing there. And then that condo three months later was worth 30 grand more. So I realized I made a salary in one transaction. So I ended up buying 10 more by the end of the year. So how did you buy 10 more? That, like, that's, that's not a small thing. How do you go from owning one condo to 10 at 21? I researched it. I went to the library. I sat down. I read a ton of books. Found a mortgage broker who would, who would work with me. Save money for down payments from you know, my corporate gig, from military stuff that I was doing, from just saving money from anything that I was getting. And you're 21 at this point? 23. 22, okay. 23. Yeah. And also at the time, Chris, there was a lot of that no-doc, 100% loan stuff mm-hmm. going on, which wasn't good. But I, I took it in the course. What's that? I don't think you could do that now. No, it'll never come. Well, it may come back, but it doesn't exist now. But I researched it. And my thought was, uh, maybe I'm not going to do it perfect, but I'm going to do it. And if I'm going to fall, I'll fall forward. And then I found myself with like 35 homes that I had somehow gotten control of. It wasn't all perfect, but it worked. What were your biggest learning lessons in the beginning? Because I'm sure there were a lot of learning lessons in the beginning. My biggest learning lesson? Uh, property. Well, listen, I got to the point where I won't, I would never go back and redo it. Never. Because it got me to the point where I am now and it, it helped define who I am now. But I was self-managing way too long. And it caused me more stress. Um, I gave up my 20s and mid- early 30s because I was constantly painting something, running around, all that type of stuff. I could have handed it over to property managers by the time I was 26, 27, and spend my time on the high value task, which was going to find new stuff, as opposed to, let me go paint this wall this weekend. But in hindsight, you know, I am where I am now, so it's, it's, it's okay. And how did you make the leap from single family to multifamily. Yeah, so this is, this is what happens, and I think this is where you were getting at when you and I connected about mindset. I never did the, I never got into the real estate investing because I wanted, quote unquote, money. I got into the real estate investing because I was trying to find a way to win my freedom. I didn't like, going, I didn't like being told to go to work every day from nine to five. I never liked that. I, my, mother, my mother and father grinded on that stuff. My dad would get home from teaching and dealing with you know, all the knuckleheads in Boston that would go to his elementary or junior high. And he would come sit on our big round uh, brown chair in the living room and with his suit and tie on fall asleep in the chair at 6 p.m. I remember that. I I didn't want any part of that. 
So my philosophy was, oh man, when you own real estate, somebody pays you for it. I can get people to pay me for multiple pieces of real estate and somehow replace my corporate salary with salary coming in from real estate. That's all I knew. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I, I, I didn't ask anybody about it. I just researched it in books and I went after it. By 2014, after starting in 2002 or 2003, I replaced my corporate salary or I equaled my corporate salary in passive income. So six figures I was making in corporate, I was making it in, in real estate. And I knew like, oh man, I'm, I'm technically free now. So in 10 years, you could afford to stop working. 14. 14 years, you could afford to stop working. Because I started, remember I said I bought that personal finance for dummies in 2001. It was somewhere in that space my journey started. But in, and I say 14 because I struck off on my wall posted note, the last step that I had to financial freedom in 2014. I never forget that day when I crossed it off and I knew I was fine. But I think what happened at that point was I bought the next condo I was like, I'm kind of doing the same thing and I'm not growing as an individual. Yes, I reached a monetary goal and a freedom goal, but that wasn't all that I wanted out of life. You know what I mean? So I invested in myself, education, right? I went to another program, learned about multifamily real estate. That was in 2015. It took me, I had limiting beliefs to, to doing it. It took me another two years before I hired a mentor, more investment, and I ended up buying that mobile home community as my first multifamily property. So the jump was personal development, scaling a little bit, but it was really more of the personal development, I think I can do more uh, mindset. What's in the future for you business-wise? Man, so since 2016, I've been involved with X number of multifamily deals. I've run my own uh, without investors. I've done syndications with investors. I've been a limited partner myself. I invested in additional restaurants in DC. Now, this is what happened in the last uh, year. I have a partner of mine, her name is Aaron. We did it. We were trying to do a deal together in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Aaron introduced me to two other people that needed a sponsor on a deal. We recognized that we executed on that deal in Tennessee really well as a foursome, uh, four professionals together. And we thought, you know what? We have strengths and we have weaknesses, but for some reason that deal went so well, why wouldn't we partner as a group and do more together faster? So I have partnered with this group. We call our, our company is called Quattro Capital. And in the last, man, since January, this is where you surround yourself with other people. Like it goes exactly back to what you were saying. We closed on our first place in Tennessee. Next Friday, we're closing on three buildings in Tennessee. We close on a building in Atlanta. We have another building in Atlanta under contract right now. My partner, Chad, is working on two buildings in Alabama. We added one more partner. We have just blown up, like internal to ourselves. We're not competing with anyone. I don't want any part of that. And here's the other critical thing, Chris. We did all that and recognized we, everyone's doing everything. So we're talking to, they're talking to an investor, I'm talking to an investor, they're talking to a potential partner, that person's talking to a bank, but I'm talking to a bank. We were stepping all over each other. So we invested in ourselves and we got a business coach three weeks ago. And ever since we got that business coach, it is insane what has happened where we have figured out the categories of improvement we need to do, who's gonna focus on what, and what do you think happens? Boom, three more deals pop out of the woodwork. It's unbelievable what's happening. Um, are you willing to share who the business coach is and then how you selected your business coach? I, I don't want to share who the business coach is, but I will say he came out of the Tony Robbins family. But how we select, it wasn't, it wasn't me that selected him. It was one of my partners that found him. And then she, Kim, suggested to us on a group call that we needed help. Rightfully so, every member of the group was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's invest in ourselves as a group because it's only going to benefit ourselves as individual individuals. But let me take one step back. I am happy to be growing as an investor entrepreneur. I still don't want a massive business because my time is valuable, right? I, I, I'm not interested in employees. I'm not 
I don't want any of that stuff because I still have other things to do in the world. And, you know, I want to travel and take my kids places and all that. Well, hey, Mo, why are you scaling a little bit? And the reason I'm allowing it to happen is because I have partners who can pick up the slack in areas that I don't want to I don't want to operate in. But it still goes back to my fundamental belief that if I can drive my net worth, if I can drive assets into my family, then I can have legacy and be able to have my kids or my grandkids, my kids' children, when they come about, you know, they will have choice of freedom and I can give back to communities in an additional meaningful way. It is so easy to go after it from an entrepreneurial perspective when I have this underlying purpose that is not money associated with it. Um, so I just want to throw that stuff out there because I never want anyone to think about, I honestly don't care my peers, how many apartments they have or how many restaurants they have, or I don't care. What I care about is how much are you giving back to community? How much are you providing for your family? Are you creating time, space, and time wealth for yourself? So that, that is what is, is happening. You ask the question, what are you doing next? That's what's happening. So I plan to leave corporate America soon. I don't know if I can give up being a police officer because I love it too much. Uh, I'm taking a two months off right now, believe it or not, to, to try and I'm going to go travel overseas with my oldest, but for my youngest, because of COVID, we're going to stay and travel around the U.S., hopefully in a camper. Just live life, man. I'm, I'm not, I'm 44, young, happy. I'm not waiting till I'm 65, 70 to do all the things I want to do. So the, I think mindset and, and outlook is, is critical to the next set of questions. Yeah. So you're, you're a police officer. You don't have to be a police officer, clearly. No. Now, there, there's a movement, Black Lives Matter. There was a lot of incidents in the news where police have overstepped. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on those events? Because you're a police officer. Yeah, yeah. You're a black male in the United States. Yeah. So let me start there first. I'm a black male in the United States. I'm a black male who has two black children in the United States. Uh, and, th and I happen to be a police officer as well. I will protect my career field because I'm telling you, when I go out on patrol, there is so much selfless, there are so many selfless acts that go on in the middle of the night that the American public will never see. They'll never see uh, carrying a woman down seven flights of stairs in a burning building. They'll never see me in my old shift on three or four separate occasions that I can remember us going into someone's house and pulling a, pulling a burglar out of that person's house when their kids, their husband, their wife was in there. And we have no fear. Police are trained. I mean, I'm military and police, so I have a double down on it. But police are trained to go towards danger, not away from it. No one will ever see those good things, and I don't care because that is what we sign up to do, and I'm fine with it. Now, to the other people who are in the career field, they've lost it. Some people have lost their way. I think sometimes I would rather the term law enforcement go away, and we change that with community protector or something. Because there is this notion that we are there to drive the hammer down on everybody, when actually 80, 90% of what we do is of what we do is uplifting and protecting community. It is hard, actually. The George Floyd thing, just to, to put it out there, George Floyd was murdered. He was actually lynched for eight minutes and 43 seconds. There is nothing that I have experienced of being, after being a federal agent for 16 years and then being a police officer for 12 years that could ever justify what I saw uh, those, that officer do. There are other officers who are in the career field who are doing stupid shit like that that just need to go away. But the profession is noble. The profession is right. I adore the responsibility of taking care of people, taking care of people. But at the same time, there are systematic issues in this country which force me to, for example, my 20-year-old, five days after the George Floyd incident, calls me and says, Dad, should I stop driving? I said, what? Should I stop driving because I don't want to have the same thing that happened to George Floyd happen to me? I shouldn't have to answer that question, nor should I have to teach my son how to conduct himself during a traffic stop. That's the realities of where we are at the moment. I will never walk away from the responsibility that I took on to be a police officer and help people because I own it. But I also own the fact that there are assholes in my career who are doing the wrong thing. And any of them can come up to me and talk to me about it if they want. Good luck, because uh, if you are not respecting the community, 
or at least doing the job for the right reasons. We all make mistakes. And this whole thing has caused me to go back in my own mind to see if I've made mistakes with the community. You should all be reflecting at the moment. But the honor of, you know, being in the military and what I was doing, being a federal agent, what I was doing, and being a police officer in my local community, I'll never give it up. In fact, I should double down and go out there and be a better example of what cops should be. Uh, and if I see bullshit happening on the street, intervene and make sure it doesn't happen. So I interviewed a psychiatrist, yeah. black woman. She's in Oklahoma, a very white town. And she has specific conversations, specifically with her son, about how he needs to conduct himself with police officers because they don't get the leeway that someone who's white will get. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that statement? I think she's a mother and she needs to take care of her kids as she sees appropriate. I mean, th- there there is a level of unconscious bias and systematic bias that exists in this country that's, it should be expected. Uh, you know, whatever anyone's feeling about the Black Lives Movement, they matter because they didn't matter for 300 years. Okay, so slavery was around for two, 300 years, right? Or 200, 300 years. She is absolutely right to teach her kids how to conduct themselves, especially in particular areas where there is no diversity whatsoever. But that does not mean that every single police officer would treat that person in that manner. Here, so I'm a black, I'm a parent, right? I'm a police officer. I've taught my 20 year old how to act. My 20 year old is, is autistic, high functioning autistic. I worry about the day that he gets pulled over and his behaviors related to autism could be misinterpreted as somebody who is disrespectful or uh, non-communicative, non-communicative to an officer who might pull him over. Um, so you have to do what you need to do as a parent. She's right, but as are you know police officers who are doing the job the right way. There's both sides of the coin. So can you, for people that are listening, I think there's a lack of communication from a parent, cop, their kid is autistic. So I think educating people on what autism is is really important if you can discuss that and then discuss it from the police standpoint of what are they looking for people i don't think become a cop because they want to do bad things in the world but they're legitimately fearful of who they're pulling over so if you can give their their viewpoint as well yeah listen so uh, so far in my career i think any any time well what i was going to say to to be transparent to the audience is like so far in my career i've been in several very bad situations and shootings and things of that nature. I've been plenty in plenty of fights as a police officer, protecting myself or the community. So I speak from a level of, I've been through it, if you will. When you are, when you are executing a traffic stop, I, I, have no, I have no animosity towards anyone in that vehicle, but I, I will be more defensive until, the only thing that can kill you in this world is hands. Once I know where people's hands are, I, I go back to being the good old Maurice. I'm like the, trust me, I can take care of myself out in the world, especially the way that I grew up and military background and whatever background, doesn't matter. I think a lot of people can take care of themselves in the world. I can certainly take care of myself, but it's only to the, it's only to the point where, it's only once I know that nothing is gonna happen to me as a person do I feel more, more comfortable. I think that's where there is a mistake. There is lack of communication on why Police officers may have a more abrupt stance until they know that nothing is, is wrong. You know what I mean? That's why certain police departments will do things like citizen academies to understand the perspective of a citizen, but uh, to understand the perspective of a So you, you asked me if I knew, knew what you meant, and, and actually, I really don't. Like, I, I've never had to pull someone over. Yeah. I don't know what's going through the head of a cop when he's pulling someone over. So I'll see videos where people will... A police officer saying, let me see your ID. I don't know the law. I don't know if they have to show the ID or not, but people will just say, no, nope, I'm not showing you my ID. I don't have to tell you anything. And to me, that seems you're just being confrontational from the start, which is probably not helping things. Yeah, but you don't know the perspective of that citizen. That's not fair. I can't, you, you, I don't judge any, this is the thing. Like we're all judging each other all of a sudden. So, I don't judge anyone, you know? They may have had many bad experience with the police, mm-hmm. so they can, they can do that. But in general, what I would general. tell you, in general, when you got your driver's license, 
you agreed to follow rules and regulations of that state when it comes to the traffic article, right? When it comes to traffic violations or what have you. You also agreed that when you are pulled over and when you are being pulled over, uh, it's because that officer, in theory, has reasonable suspicion that you've made infraction with respect to criminal law or traffic law or something like that. You are required to identify yourself to that police officer. You are required by the state. You agreed to it when you got your driver's license. So to say that, hey, I'm not going to give you my, and it depends on every state. I, I don't know mm -hmm. all the country, but to say that I'm not going to identify myself to you, you're just putting yourself and that officer in a bad position. Because if you're not cooperative, it's just like you are escalating the situation as opposed to there should just be a common respect there. I'm, I'm asking, we are asking for ID because that's what you agreed to do when you got your driver's license or that's what you agreed to do when you drive in that particular state. But I have to respect citizens who've been through traumatic, may have been through traumatic things or everything that they see in the news. There's just so much going on that if you don't have empathy on both sides of the equation, you're just causing the situation to blow up. So as a police officer, do you have any suggestions or guidelines for a regular citizen when a police officer approaches them? Yeah, follow instructions. Follow instructions and know that you are part of escalating or de-escalating, just like that police officer needs to follow his or her policies and procedures and be respectful to the community. Now, on the flip side, as the father of an autistic child, yeah. son, what is autism and how does your son function that might be a little bit different than the norm. Yeah, autism, the definition of autism is very different. And there, that's why it's called the autism spectrum because it manifests itself in very different ways. My son is what's called high functioning autistic, which means he has the mental capacity to function and operate on his own. So when it comes to him, uh, he struggles with expressive communication. So the way that you and I are having this engaged dialogue, that's not where my son would thrive. He and his mom, me, me, myself and his mom, we really pushed when he was young because every single effing doctor, I really want to give a middle finger right now because I'm, I'm very angry at the medical community, probably for lack of information, but when my son was born in 2000, there was so much misinformation about autism, we were told that he would never function at all. And we pushed and I just didn't believe it. So I just, we, we, we pushed to the point where now, you know, he's in college, he's driving his own car, he has his own money, he operates his own life. Had I listened to what everybody was telling me, he wouldn't be this way. So I just throw that out there, that if you are a parent with someone who's autistic or on the Asp or Asperger's, push really hard. Because the window of development for someone who's on the spectrum is really between three and 13. And once you, maybe three and 15, once you get out of that window, it gets even harder. But our kids struggle. Wait, and what did you do then for anyone that's listening who has an autistic child and they're not being given the resources by the medical community? I just didn't accept what people were telling me. What would you suggest they do? Find every resource available. Go to every therapy you can find. Find something that resonates. Find a school. Find a school system that supports the goals of what your family is trying to achieve. Unfortunately, where my son grew up in Maryland, and I won't say the county, the county, he was in regular school and we fought for 19 months at 400 bucks an hour, so run that bill, to get my son referred into a non-public high school where his class sizes would be down to five to eight people. The school system fought because the school system would be responsible, you know, the IDEA Act, the Education Act, everyone is entitled so equal education and my son sitting in a class of 30 people, it just wasn't going to work for him. So we pushed and I, well, Maurice, you guys had the resources. No, we didn't have the resources. I went into debt because I wanted him to have the best life possible. So we pushed. So we got him into a non-public high school that had small class sizes that could deal with high functioning autistic kids. His education was tough. It's still tough. Uh, I will always have his power of attorney to make sure that everything he's doing is okay. Um, but I would just say to people, like, just don't give up. And again, surround yourself with like-minded people. We would always connect with other parents who are dealing with autistic children, share resources, share support. 
you know, and we did the best we could. And I think he's going to have the best life possible as a result. So that I think is a perfect frame then to, to lead into the next question is you, you've poured your heart and soul into raising this child. Yeah. He's doing well. He's driving his own car. He's functioning. But he will. He may have significant difficulties in dealing with a police officer. He may, but we have. I have done my best to mitigate it. And what did you teach him? And the reason I'm asking that question is so that other parents with autistic children can learn from that. When he gets pulled over, he knows that the first thing to hand over to a police officer is a card that says, "I am autistic. I struggle with communication. Please be patient." Under that card, he'll give his driver's license, he'll give his registration. I pounded it into his head. So he knows exactly what to do, and hopefully there'll be a level of understanding there. Is there anything that you do as a police officer to work with the other police officers to help them with, with that specific issue? Oh, it's just awareness. I mean, I, I, think, I think in general, the, the law enforcement community is well aware that there is a special needs community we look for it in the same manner that if someone is behaving a certain way, we, we understand that they may be going through a diabetic episode or something like that. Like we're, I think that the community is fairly trained to recognize that there may be, maybe other things going on. I worry about small departments that don't have budgets to put their officers through those types of bits of education. But I, I do think there's more awareness now. Like it, back in the 2000s, I mean, there was such a lack of awareness and lack of resources when it came to that issue of special needs. We're two decades later, and I, I think it's a lot better. So you're in a unique position where you're, you're working as a police officer because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah. If you could, but you also have an extensive business background. Yeah. You, you clearly know how to function within teams, build alliances. If you could wave a magic wand on fixing the, the, the break between the public's trust and police officers, how would you fix that? Oh, brother, that's such a loaded question. I know, but you've given such good answers. I don't know. Empathy. Empathy is my word for a lot of issues. Because if we could just show empathy toward, look, you don't have to understand the Black Lives Matter movement. You don't have to, and I'm not saying I am 100% engaged in every single uh, movement activity every single time. I am empathetic to everything. I am empathetic to people who are special needs. I'm empathetic to law enforcement who are doing the job for the right reasons. Uh, I am empathetic to, I'm privileged. I've carried some level of badge between my military and civilian law enforcement career. I recognize that I've never been in, I've never been in a situation that I worry about those types of things on my own, like me, Maurice, the individual. I'm privileged. So I'm empathetic to brothers like myself who have never had that privilege. I, ha- I have it, right? Um, this whole, like, this is going to sound real touchy-feely, man, but this is the way that I am when I travel overseas. I'm empathetic to whatever country that I'm in. I ask, for, I ask about what's going on in the local community. Uh, how do you guys live? What's your currency? What do you hate? What do you love? Like, I'm always asking questions because I want to be empathetic to where I, I go to the point where I will study uh, mannerisms that may come off to people overseas that might be considered offensive. There are certain places you don't stick out your hand to, sh- to shake a hand because it's considered offensive. I look at it. It's the same thing in the policing community with how you deal with citizenry. If a citizen is pissed off, it's not because you did something wrong. It may be because they've had an encounter with another police officer that was shitty, and now here you are with the same uniform or different uniform, but they can't just block out the, the experience that they've had. You have to be empathetic to that person's view, to a point. Don't get me wrong, but you also, that person always ha- also has to be respectful to the authority that's given, given to me, but empathy would go a long way in the way we're operating now. For some reason, a lot, there's just... To me, there's just so much ego floating around and misinformation and anger, which I totally understand and it's warranted. But I I don't know how to fix the issue. All I can do unto myself is be the best officer that I can be and be empathetic to the citizenry that I run into. So we talked about your, you you came from immigrant parents. You've made a phenomenal life with yourself. You've worked very, very hard. You've emphasized giving back to the community. Do you have a, a message to someone who say someone like you who is 
much younger or someone who's in their like say maybe 30s and they're struggling with that nine to five corporate job they're just grinding what do you yeah. have to say to them know your purpose and don't compete create and if you'll indulge me let me just explain that okay everything that i've done if people think that it's a lot it it it, it is a lot and i i am slowing down a little bit because i mean i've been doing what i've been doing for 20 years it's it wears on you after a while but because I knew my purpose of financial freedom, and because I live, wanted to live life a particular way, um, because I wanted to travel the world and do different things and then create a world for my kids to operate in, I was willing to you know, work all the jobs and struggle and lose all my friends in my 20s and all those types of things, because I had a purpose. If you have a purpose, the nine to five won't be so bad, because what you're doing is you're creating revenue from your paycheck and you're taking the, the, the money you're making from that nine to five and you are applying it to your purpose. It's easy. It, where people really get caught up is that they get into this rat race thing and they make a check and they're not applying it to anything. They're spending money on crap or consumerism kicks in or they're going to the club and wasting their money or whatever. Know your purpose and apply those funds to your purpose. Like stack paper. You don't have to invest it right away. Stack paper, save 25, 10, 25, 50. If you can get to 100 grand, 100 grand to me is where you can make a dent. And you can over time. It just might take a long time. Stop spending money on crap and invest your money or save it to invest it. So that's the first thing. Know your purpose. The second thing is when I say don't compete, create, I made a conscious decision at some point in my corporate career that I did not need to be the partner, the CEO, the director. I just needed to be the best freaking executive as possible for the for my clients at the particular time or the best police officer or the best military officer until I got to lieutenant colonel. I never, like this whole notion that you must be number one in every single thing that you do is crap to me. I'm okay with self-drive. I had my own self-drive, but that's because I took everything that I was making because I wanted to create this life that I now have. If I would have just gone like, oh, I must be a partner. I'm a, I, that's the only thing I want is to make it to partner. Then I would have just been chasing a title. I think that is the problem. We are spending so much time chasing titles, which are meaningless in the end. You're not going to give a shit about the office that you have overlooking 10th Avenue on the day of your deathbed. No one's going to care. But if you have self-drive and that's your purpose because you want to be high up in that company, then yes, go do it. Uh, if you want to go travel the world and you're creating all this revenue such that you can break free and go create the life that you want, yes, go do it. We've just gotten stuck in this chasing titles, doing what society tells us to do, plugging into the matrix. But all you got to do, man, is take a step back, look at your income or create as much income as possible, define the life that you'd like to create and create that and stop worrying about what your peer is doing. It can be a model or fault. Like I'm, my mentors are people who are in this, like Tim, to me, Tim Ferriss is a mentor for me because the way he taught me how freedom equals time plus mobility. Like that's always been my equation. Just create instead of competing with people. I will tell you that the people who went on to be certain CEOs and certain partners or have a title or whatever, and they look back on it and they're like, what did I really create? I just, got myself to a title and now the company is moving on from me. Whereas I feel like I've created my best life now. So have your purpose, create versus compete. And uh, thanks for letting me get on my soapbox there, Chris, a little bit. But I recognize now what I've done over the last 20 years and I think that I've created my best life. There's something you glossed over. I know that I was, that was supposed to be the last question, but I have to ask. Yeah. Cause you're, you're a super thoughtful guy. You, you mentioned that you lost your friends when you were in your 20s. Yeah. yeah. So that, you just glossed over that, but that seems like a really important thing to touch on. There, yeah. So I was just doing different things in my 20s. I'm not saying I was bad to people or people were bad to me. Just people moved on and went on to do different things. Uh, and I think that's good for them. Where my path was taking me was entrepreneurialism, and finding a way to free myself from whatever this nine to five rat race crap that we were doing. Like that meant the most to me. So when all the fellas and ladies were going out during the weekends and 
don't get me wrong. I partied with the best of them. So don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm just suggesting that it was very hard to talk to people on the entrepreneurial track if they weren't in the entrepreneurial track themselves. There was no commonality there. So you just start to naturally, you know, digress from people and move on to different spaces. And, you know, there are one or two people that I was friends with back in the day who I have reconnected with now. And I'm glad that I did. I think the mistake that I made in my 20s and early 30s was I kind of expressed to people that this was the only way. You know what I mean? Entrepreneurialism or fighting for this or whatever is the only way. It's not, brother. If you want to be a government employee and do the nine to five and raise your best family and fight for your pension and that's enough for you, then then people should respect that. So that no way is better than the other at all, by any means. Uh, I just recognize that um, folks that I was connected to in my 20s and 30s, we kind of separated. And I, you know, I have a very different circle now than I did back then. Maurice, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing the wisdom. Yeah. Um, I think the, I'll, I'll speak for myself, that, that tract of getting out of the nine to five and really focusing on values and growth, giving back is it, it seems to make for a much happier and um, fulfilling life. So thank you so much for taking the time for this podcast. And, and thank you for uh, letting me speak on it. And uh, just that is a little bit therapeutic for me, man. So I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Wish you nothing but this, all success. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.